All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode one of Heartland Revival. I am excited to bring on our first guest. This guest I met on Twitter, and I quickly realized the intelligence and experience he had. I want to lean on this intelligence and kind of set the framework for this podcast. I want to talk about the Midwest, its greatness, its history, where it came from and where it's going. And I think this is a great first guest to get us started. He's got a wealth of knowledge on American history, particularly the Midwest. So without further ado, Mr. Kurt Steiner. Kurt, how you doing? Oh, pretty well. Um, so yeah, so I'm a, just as a little, little background here. Um, I'm a PhD student uh, finishing up a dissertation in a uh, undisclosed location and a dissertation on an undisclosed topic. I intentionally don't tweet about my topic. Um, but uh, when you're a PhD student in history, uh, part of the requirement is uh, you've got to have a working knowledge of the historiography of, of American history. So this is something I can, I can address. Um, I will say as a Midwest guy, um, I put quite a bit of time into the history of the Midwest, lots of other things too. But um, yeah, so as I was talking to Rust Belt kid, I, I, I just told him, as I said, hey, I, I could just kind of do kind of a cursory uh, outlining of of the history of the Midwest and its its historical significance. Uh, but this but it started off though with Rust Belt Kids name, which is Rust Belt. Um, and I, that's that I just anybody with Rust Belt in their title, I just have a tendency just to follow. And then Rust Belt was putting out good stuff. Um, and so Rust Belt, he contacted me and he said, he said, hey, let's let's explore this Rust Belt thing. And what I told him is I said, I said, okay, so the, so kind of a, a big question that maybe we can answer at a later time. I don't think we've got time for it on, on this episode is like, well, what caused the Rust Belt? But there's a, there's a preceding question, which is um, what caused there to be anything there at all to rust in the first place? If you're gonna talk about the Rust Belt, well, there's something there that had to rust. And so, um, I mean, the argument that I wanna make is the reality is, is that the Midwest, uh, tied to the East Coast, but the Midwest um, was one of the greatest economic hubs in human history. And the cause of that, there's a twofold cause. Um, one is uh, geology and geography uh, coupled with human action. So you've got the land, you've got opportunity with the land, but then you also have the people that, that, that come into the land. Um, and so I, I was thinking about like, where do, I, where do we start this story? And at the most basic level, uh, it's it's the geology, the geography itself, the land itself, um, which is funny because Rust Belt. That's actually that's when I started following you. You had like this like Twitter thread on like hills and people planting, in, right? Like in valleys or on top of the hills. Is that right? I, I feel like that's where I started following. Yeah, drumlins, the great geological feature of a drumlin. Yes, and I and I loved it because I'm not like that's not like I do history. I don't do geology, but history and geology are intimately linked. And so I, I really appreciated that thread. I, I hope you've got it saved somewhere because it, it was a really good thread. Um, so, yeah, so, 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 th th so, but I want to make that, th that's going to be part of the argument is, is that this, the, the, the particular nature, like literally nature of the Midwest coupled with, with historical human circumstances is what makes the Midwest this powerhouse. Um, so where I'm going to start with this, then I'm going to just start with 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 Jefferson and Hamilton here just for a second. Um, back at the end of the American Revolution, 
We've got the Federalist period here, and you've got Hamilton, who is uh, Secretary of the Treasury. You've got Jefferson, who's Secretary of State, and President is George Washington. And Jefferson and Hamilton, they have two very different views of of what America is going to look like and what it's going to look like moving into the West. Um, Hamilton, Hamilton, uh, essentially what he wants to do is he wants to recreate uh, the English system for the Americans. So um, strong central government, um, uh, strong urban hubs with manufacturing, which means we want tariffs to protect American manufacturing. And he wants a national bank. Jefferson, on the other hand, is, is very wary of any sort of centralized power. Uh, and Jefferson's vision is, is one of expansion. And his vision of expansion is, is that we want to go into the West. We want to acquire territory in the West. And we want to create a space for yeoman farmers. And Jefferson idealizes the yeoman farmer as somebody who is truly independent. He has his own land. He's self-sustaining. Uh, he is not dependent on, on a lord. Um, and then this, this, this system also here will prevent uh, the building up of a, of a, of a lower class uh, in these urban hubs. And so Hamilton and Jefferson are very much at odds with each other about this. As it turns out, Jefferson wins the election in 1800. Um, and the Jeffersonian vision is the one that, that dominates uh, in many ways the, the first half of the 19th century. Which, which explains why, uh, in large part, Jefferson is so intent on acquiring the Louisiana Purchase, because he sees that if I can buy all this land up in the middle of the middle of the country or the middle of the, the, the continent, that right there is the is acquiring the space that will allow for the flourishing of these Republican citizens, these independent yeoman citizens that can then go into the frontier and be self-sustaining. Now, key, I think, key, key part I want to key off on here is the War of 1812. Now. I, um, I, the, the, the details of how we get into the war is, is somewhat beside the point for this discussion. The significance of the War of 1812 is there's two big things that happen on it. Um, one is the Great Lakes region, which is between America and, and Canada, gets demilitarized. So the whole, the whole Great Lakes region, there's, there's, there's agreements between the British and the Americans to limit, essentially, uh, naval vessels in the Great Lakes region, which creates this, this tremendous... Uh, uh, waterway, this tremendous economic zone that um, is going to allow the connection of the Midwest to the East, the, 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 the financial power of the East, and then acquiring the resources in the Midwest itself. Uh, the second consequence of the War of 1812 is, is that the Native peoples that are in the Midwest, they lose their last uh, European um, ally. And so it, in this sense, uh, it, it takes time, but the situation of the native peoples in the Midwest uh, becomes fraught because you've got the Americans, American people uh, in 1800, the average American woman is having eight kids. Um, now the mortality rate uh, prior to five years old is about 50%. This is like one of these kind of weird things. Like a lot of kids are dying um, for, a, for a bunch of different reasons, uh, disease being the main one. So, but even then, even then, if you only have four kids that survive, uh, your population is growing tremendously. And this, this growing population then is driving into the Midwest region. Um, and so the, the War of 1812 is significant for that reason. The, the British are neutralized in, in, in the Midwest, what is the Midwest. And then also the native peoples are, are really put on their back foot in that regard. Now, back to geography just for a second. So what's in the Midwest? Uh, you know, if you acquire the Sahara Desert, um, 
great. You've got a lot of sand. So what's in the Midwest that makes it so uh, powerful and advantageous? There's a couple, couple of different features that I want to highlight in the Midwest. One is when you get over the Appalachian Mountains and you get into the Midwest, it's, it's very, very flat. So you got a flat land. Uh, it's a rich land. It's a very, very fertile land. If you look at maps of, for instance, tree coverage of North America in the 1800s, the entire Midwest is heavily, heavily wooded. Uh, and those, those, those trees depend on, on fertile ground. And so as, as the colonists uh, or as, as Americans pour into the Midwest, they've got fertile land, but they've also got a lot of wood. And European commentators talk about America during this time as being a wooden nation. It's because they have so many trees and they use, and these trees, we kind of take lumber for granted, but trees are super important for, from, from everything from housing uh, to fuel um to uh, uh boats we'll talk about rivers here in just a second but boats and then also fences i mean the ability to kind of carve out your your space to keep your keep your animals or to say this is mine this is yours and so we've got flat land we got a rich land we got a lot of lumber and out of this then grows uh in tr a tremendously powerful agricultural hub um, as these people pour into the west and they're, they're growing everything from grains vegetables fruits also um animal products uh everything from from protein meat to all of the all of the other uh side uh side products of animals uh, leather being a big one and so as the americans pour in they're, they're growing a lot of stuff they've got a lot of lumber they got a lot of wood it's good for fuel also a couple other things too that the midwest has is it's it's like a bonanza it's sort of like uh have you ever played civilization any of the civilization games i don't even I haven't even heard of them to be honest with you okay so it's sort of like just think about it like in terms of like it's like a video game where you're like out you know building your civilization and like you get to a section of the map where it's just full of stuff like really good stuff you're like oh i like i hit the jackpot so not only do we have flat land fertile land lots of lumber but then we're also finding major iron ore deposits um the minnesota uh iron range for instance is a good example of this so you got you got to find a lot of iron uh we're finding and this will be more important as we move along in the 19th century but a ton of coal and then later we get an oil boom in in Pennsylvania and Ohio. So if you just look at if you just look at the stuff that's there, um, it's it's really it's really creates a foundation for in tremendous material prosperity. Uh, this is what the Midwest has now. What people complain about with the Midwest is the weather, obviously. And this is something I, I want to look into more. I've heard some historians talk about it, but the weather is kind of an interesting factor in the the uh, the creation of a of the north and the south, and that is uh, the north uh, the weather in the north because your growing season is spring, uh, your planting season is spring, your growing season is summer, your harvest season is fall, and then you've got this really like I mean you know up in the UP I mean how long does winter last? Six like a month. Yeah, like a really long time. Now you come down a little bit into the lower Midwest, it, 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 it's somewhat shorter. Right. But that weather though, is it actually plays an important role, um, not exclusively, but does play an important role in terms of uh, slavery staying south of the Mason-Dixon line, um, where in the south you can, you can work your slaves kind of year round, where in the north, it doesn't make as much economic sense because for large portions of the year, you're not harvesting crops, which is what what slaves are used for predominantly. It's, you know, harvesting cash crops. So weather also plays a role in shaping uh, the political institutions uh, of the North, where you don't have the penetration of slavery into the North 
just because it doesn't make as much sense as it does uh, further south. Another geographic feature too that I wanna highlight here is the river system. Um, the Mississippi River Basin, which goes all the way, you know, all the way the Missouri up to the west and then and the, the great Ohio uh, up to the east. The, the river system is, is tremendously important in terms of moving goods and moving people. Um, it's, it's the cheapest way to move stuff, much cheaper than like putting something on a wagon. If you can just, if you can get it to the river and you pop it on a boat, uh, you, can, you can float it pretty much anywhere. And so the river system is also very, very important for this. Um, so that's, that, those are kind of like the, the, the geographic realities we're dealing with here. So we get, you know, the river system. Also, I'd say the Great Lakes too become a major transportation uh, network. It's just much cheaper to move stuff by water. And so the Midwest, it has in the 19th century into the 20th century, some very, some tremendous um, advantages, just strictly geographically speaking. Now in terms of, but, but okay, but you, you can have, you can have great, you can have great geography, you can have great geology, but you need to have, that also has to mix with people, then, which moves to my second point. And that is like, who, who are these people that are, that are moving into the West? Um, Walter McDougall is a, is a historian um gosh what is the name of his book he's got two books on essentially the 17th and 18th century america or 18th and 19th century america and he makes the argument that what is it that makes this american thing unique and the argument he makes is, it's, it's a simple argument but simple arguments are sometimes the best he just he, he argues that the american people have hustle they have hustle and he means that in two ways. He, he admittedly means it in two ways. One is like a hustler is like a cheat or like, you know, a scam artist. Okay, so that, that's, that's one part of the hustle. But the other part of the hustle is just working really, really hard and a lot of elbow grease and a lot of aspiration. And the West provides a space for the American people to go out and do their own thing and make their own way in life. Now, that doesn't mean it's, you know, it's all sunshine and rainbows. But the, the combination of the geography plus the people, kind of the nature of the people themselves, and a lot of these people are, are, are immigrants from Europe, right? So they already have hustle. They already, they already crossed the ocean to get to this place, and now they're going to go out into the frontier. And so you're already kind of, you've already kind of selected for a particular kind of person who's going to start going out into the frontier to make, to make their way. Um, did you ever, did you, so just as a segue, Rust Belt, did you, uh, are you familiar with the Little House in the Prairie series? A long time ago, yeah. That's like something like maybe like your mom read you or I think like fourth grade we had to read it. Yeah, okay. So like I, I think I think Pa it's been a long time since I've I've read those series. I grew up when my mom read it to us and they had the television show. But like Pa, I think is like a really good example of this in terms of that that story begins in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. I think the first book is called The Great Northwoods or something. And as you read that series, Pa is constantly moving west. He constantly goes, sets up a homestead, sells it. Goes, sets up a homestead, sells it. Goes, sets up a homestead, sells it. Like this is this is this is the American hustle, right? It's mm -hmm. it's the American, but there's a space to go do this stuff, right? Like you're not you're not stuck. Like you can go you can go west. Um, and so in this regard, um, so back to McDougall's argument is this idea that Americans have hustle, but then the frontier also it creates a a space for democratic independence. Like you are truly independent out there. You don't need anybody. I mean, to, to idealize it. Um, but there is this space where where you can go and make your own way. It also fosters a great deal of uh, inventiveness. Uh, one of the things that European commentators talk about Americans in the Midwest is just how thrifty they are. Uh, nobody is just a farmer. Uh, you're a farmer and you're, uh, you're a bricklayer. 
or you're a farmer and you're a whiskey maker or you're is there all Americans are always looking for how can I take my land and turn an extra buck on producing some other good that somebody else wants. Uh, and so and then and then I think related to this as well is is the fact that we've got also a a free market. <clears throat> if you go out, you can own your land, you can turn a profit and you can make yourself better off. And so we get this kind of this very kind of Wild West free market thing here, too, as people pour into the West and they're developing their property and they're looking for ways to get their goods to market. Now, but this sets up this sets up kind of an interesting thing in that. Um, one of the big debates in the early republic was over the responsibility of government to develop infrastructure and so uh the the jeffersonians who who dominate uh politics um for for decades until jackson shows up um the jeffersonians are very insistent that the federal government has no responsibility on developing infrastructure that's a state thing okay the federal we want to keep the federal government as small as possible and what you see is you see states begin investing pretty heavily with public funds uh, in canals and roads. And I think one of the one of the best examples of this, and that plays a really important role in the development of the Midwest, is New York. Uh, New York uh, builds the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal is finished in 1825. And if you look at a map, if I was teaching right now, I would have it up on the PowerPoint and I'd be pointing this stuff out. But just imagine New York just for a second. In the southeast corner of New York State, you've got New York City. Okay, and then you follow the Hudson, it's right on the Hudson River, you follow the Hudson River up to Albany, the capital. What they do with the Erie Canal is they dig a canal from Albany straight across New York to Buffalo. Now, this is, this is hugely important because what that does is that creates a waterway then for, any, uh, for anybody on the Great Lakes region. Because now we can, now we can, we got the Ohio River, which runs down kind of on the, on the southern edge of the Midwest. Now we've got a northern route through the Great Lakes. And on account of the uh, Erie Canal being built, you suddenly have a whole new uh, access to goods and services in the, in what becomes the Midwest. And you have all these cities popping up, like Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Duluth. And what that does is that Erie Canal connects that entire development zone to New York capital. New York's got the capital. They're also a major, major trade hub with... Uh, with with uh, with Europe, and so that that Erie Canal there is is a vital vital uh, line then of relationship between the economic development in the Midwest, and then also its connection to the East. Tracking is that making sense? Yeah. So I I want to ask you just just to clarify one thing when we're talking about the Midwest in your eyes, like from a historical perspective. How do you even define the Midwest? Because there's a lot of definitions <laughs> out there. And and I know this yeah. is like a topic of constant debate and you're always good for a lot of interaction when you bring it up online. But how do you, Kurt, define the Midwest? Uh, uh, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, at some at some point, it's it's sort of like a it's like it's sort of like a fun water cooler conversation. Like I'm not. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it's like I don't know how like significant it is to like, okay, where's the county line? Right. Um, but but I do I know I do think there's something I do think there's something to be said for having the debate. Um, I guess in my mind, what I would do, what I I would say, so Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's at the the, the head of the Ohio River, yeah. and 
And I don't, from what I understand, and I haven't actually been to Pittsburgh, so like this is where I don't even want to say anything directly about Pittsburgh. But from what I understand, from the historical literature I've read, I think of Pittsburgh as like being a borderland between East Coast and Midwest. Like I don't think of the mid, I don't think of Western Pennsylvania as being Midwest. I think you got to come out, you got to come out of the Appalachian Mountains, and anything anything west of the Appalachian Mountains, then we're starting to talk Midwest. I would then casually say anything north of the ohio river um and then you know there's debates over you know where does it how far west does it go um and on that one i actually have a pretty i have a pretty clear distinct line in my mind on that one it's anything um anything east of the missouri river um Ooh, and, and I, like, I, I like that and, and I'll, I'll get this is this is my example this is my argument this is a very kind of uh, anecdotal argument but i i spent some years in south dakota and I was in uh, eastern South Dakota. And what I found was if you are in eastern South Dakota, uh, the, the, the media hub is the Twin Cities. Think mm. about it. Another way to think about it is this way. Um, who do the majority of people in the region root for in terms of their sports teams? If you're in East South Dakota, it's all Minnesota focused. Minnesota Twins, Minnesota Wild, Minnesota Vikings. If you go West River, South Dakota, it's all Denver focused. It's all Denver focused. So like, I, that's kind of where I guess in my mind, I kind of draw the line is somewhere, you know, east of the Missouri River. I can't say much about South Dakota because it's like, or uh, not South Dakota, North Dakota. I mean, North Dakota in my mind is sort of like in the same category as the UP. It's like very, very much like way out there. I don't know where it fits. Like it's sort of like its own thing. Yeah. But I, I don't know, is that, that's kind. Of, I guess that's kind of my answer for the Midwest, and like even like St. Louis. From what I understand of St. Louis, I mean St. Louis is much more of a southern town. Um, there's debates over that as well. But I guess does that kind of answer your question? Is that yeah? No, rough? I think I've never heard the Missouri River used as a line, but I I think it's probably a, mentally it feels as correct, you know. And one more yeah. thing on South Dakota is is if you talk to you know I have a interest in agriculture and. If you talk to ranchers and farmers on the plains, the Dakotas, Nebraska, you started off with weather. If you look at the the weather regime between the the far west end of South Dakota and the far east end, we're talking a thirty different thirty inches of rainfall difference. That's driving a different cropping style. That's driving a different ranching style. There's a lot of things that do change right there along that along that yes. line and so yes. i think that's a probably a pretty accurate line yeah and i you know, i think i think you know in another another area where people kind of debate the lines i mean this goes all the way back to the civil war but like during the civil war i mean one of the things that lincoln is dealing with is he's dealing with the copperheads and the copperheads are people who are in the south midwest that are somewhat sympathetic to the southern cause or they, they don't think it's worth fighting the war so like even in the Midwest, there is still going all the way back to, you know, the to the beginning, there's still like that 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 Ohio River is not a hard dividing line, is I guess what I'm saying. Like there there's kind of some fuzziness there. And so that's you know, that's kind of where I go, you know, where's the Midwest? And the Midwest has changed. We'll talk about that more as we keep going here, because there have been changes um over time. I mean, no region stays, you know, fixed um in that sense. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to I wanted to bring you on here for a lot of reasons, right? Like I, I find your takes very interesting. 
Um, you obviously have a lot of historical knowledge. Um, but I think you can't start anywhere. And if I'm going to make this podcast about the greatness of the heartland, the greatness of the Midwest, I wanted to get you on here to talk about history because you can't do anything without understanding history. I mean, being a professor, being a teacher, being a student, what do you, what do you gain from learning in your opinion? What do you gain from, from learning history and then applying it versus just working from present day forward? Uh, well, that's a big question. Um, You know, I think uh, something I emphasize with my with my students when I can is um, if you if you just start in the present and you work your way forward, or you just look at the past through the lens of the present, um, you end up projecting your own prejudices back onto the past. And one of the one of the benefits of studying the past on its own terms is you 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 when done right, you learn sympathy for people in their circumstances and the world in which they're operating, the world of ideas, material material uh, realities, et cetera, et cetera. And I think one of the things I, I, you know, I do try to emphasize with my students when I can is, okay, so you go back into the past and you're like, well, that's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. That's a bad thing. And the thing is though, is that when you get, when you get into the intricacies of the past, you realize how much ambiguity there actually is. Like from, from the standpoint of, you know, 2023 America, it's easy to kind of cast judgments on the past. But when you actually uh, walk around in in other people's shoes from the past, you learn sympathy. And I think sympathy is one of those things that then uh, creates humility in the present or ought to create humility in the present. And that is, it's not that you don't have any convictions in the present, like, well, it's all kind of just relative or whatever, but it's, it's, it's a deep appreciation for the complexity of the human experience. And, you know, the moral ambiguities, um, that can emerge uh, in the past. And that also, I think, helps kind of foster that humility in the present. Um, also, though, the other thing, with, though, with the study of the past is it helps us understand how we got to where we are, which is why I'm kind of, why I've been kind of walking us through this a little bit is just, you know, like, where did this Midwest thing come from? You know, how, how did we get to where we are? Um, so on that note, let me just, let, there's another point I want to make here. So as, as I kind of progress here a little bit, um, Frederick Jackson Turner, um, published this this very uh this very uh seminal thesis is the, the frontier thesis and he's, he's writing in the, in the late 19th century and frederick jackson turner um makes this argument about about the character of the american people but the importance of the frontier in creating this american thing so the space creates um the, the literal geographic space creates the place for which uh democratic government can flourish because you can go out, carve out your own space, and be independent in a way that's very unusual in human history. And the way Frederick Jackson Turner, he's got he's got sort of an evolutionary progression, and that is when he's looking at the history of of the Midwest or the history of you know the, the broader West. It's this idea that you've got you know you've got these 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 hunters and traders and trappers. They're they're the first. They're they're the tip of the spear, as it were going into the West, you know, like, like the Daniel Boones and the Davy Crockett's, you know, they're going out into the West. And then what follows behind them then are, are the settlers, the farmers, and they come in and start developing the land. And then behind them uh, come towns and cities and the growth of a, a, a much more robust American civilization. This is, this is 
Turner's argument very simplistically put. Richard Wade comes along in the 1950s and he flips that entire thing on its head. And and I, I find Richard Wade's argument very compelling. And what Richard Wade argues is, is that really the, 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 the spear point of American empire, the American empire of liberty, as Jefferson calls it, really the spear point is cities. He argues the spear point is cities, which is sort of a weird argument because if you look at like early 19th century America, it is um, uh, hugely a rural population, massively so. Um, but what Wade argues is that cities actually have a disproportional power in the formation of the American empire. And what he does is he explores uh, uh, Pittsburgh, Cincinnati, Louisville, Lexington, Kentucky, and St. Louis. And basically what he argues is, is that these are ink drops on the map. You need to have these cities forming along the Ohio River. Okay, the Ohio River, that's the, that's the, the highway. But you need to have these cities here because the cities then uh, are, are commercial hubs. Like if you're a farmer, you still want to get, you know, your surplus goods to market. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you got to get to the river. Okay, well, then where are you going to take it? You can take it to a city that's that's storing these goods, that's processing these goods, that's moving these goods where the merchants are operating. And so Wade comes along and just says, you know, if we look at American history, we have to we have to say that we have to put cities at the center of this, which gets back to what you and I were talking about earlier with hubs and hinterlands. The hinterlands, the, 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 the great material wealth of the American Midwest, it needs the cities to process those goods. And the cities likewise need the hinterlands to bring the goods to them. And so there's this reciprocal relationship then between the hubs and the hinterlands. I'll just I'll use two examples here. Um, Cincinnati. Cincinnati, uh, it's known as the top riverboat. Well, not known as, but it, it's the top riverboat producer in the country um, for a period of years. And riverboats, are the, 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 um, the steamboats are super important. The steamboat technology is, is vitally important because that allows you to go upriver and it allows you to go to downriver. It allows you to move goods back and forth in a much more fluid way. So Cincinnati is a huge producer of steamboats, which is a major infrastructure component. And then the other thing Cincinnati is known as is known as Porkopolis. It's a major processor of pork. And so like, this is just a good example of like how cities, like if you're a farmer out in the Ohio River Valley, you need to get your goods somewhere. Cincinnati is a crucial hub for that development. Now, Cincinnati, the, the population of Cincinnati relative to the population of the rural areas is small, but it's a vital. It's vital to the development of this Western thing. And so this is where like Frederick Jackson Turner's argument about like this kind of Jeffersonian agricultural empire. It's not that he's wrong. It's just Wade comes along and says, you, you just have to flip it. You have to flip this on its head. And that is cities are, are these, these spear points or the, the, the point of the spear moving out. Um, another example here. So Cincinnati is really uh, crucial uh, in this the first half of the 19th century. Uh, Chicago becomes vitally important in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, and this is where uh, that book I recommended to you. Um, uh, Nature's Metropolis. Nature's Metropolis by uh, William Cronin. I mean, that book is is phenomenal because it shows how Chicago, Chicago turns itself into a hub for the entire Midwest after the Civil War. And what, what Chicago does really well, what this leadership of Chicago does really well, is it turns itself, not only is it located on the Great Lakes, which is a great transportation network to the Erie Canal and stuff, but what Chicago does that makes it the hub that it is, is it manages to get the rail lines all coming through Chicago. 
think about it this way. If the Erie Canal is an artificial river, it's a man-made river. It's vital for the first half of the 19th century. Second half of the 19th century, Chicago makes artificial rivers of steel, the railroads. And the railroads, as the railroads extend into the Midwest, up into places like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Nebraska, the Dakotas, et cetera, et cetera, um, basically what it's doing is it's creating these network lines that then now the hinterlands have a place to clear their goods. And Chicago becomes this huge hub. It's nature's metropolis. It's pulling in lumber. It's pulling in all kinds of, uh, of metal resources. It's pulling in all kinds of agricultural goods. It's, be I mean, it's, it's becomes one of the, it becomes the, the, the largest slaughter, um, uh, slaughterhouse, you know, uh, uh, city in the world. I mean, it's, it's, it's processing tons and tons of, of pork and cattle. And then what it's doing is it's taking all of those products and it's picking it back out into the rest of the country, um, which is driving down food prices. It's, tr it's generating tremendous amounts of wealth. It, it, and when Europeans come, when folks from out east come to Chicago, they're just they're just blown away by this this economic dynamo. Um, likewise, too, <clears throat> Chicago is pulling all of these resources in, which is generating capital out and it's generating wealth out in the hinterlands. It's generating wealth in Chicago. But just as another example, Chicago becomes such a hub. It becomes a major lumber hub. And what they do is they they end up becoming a major lumber market. They're pulling in all of this lumber from northern Wisconsin, the UP, Michigan, and they're pulling that lumber in. And then they're kicking that lumber out into the Great Plains where you don't have natural lumber resources. And they're kicking all that lumber out into the Great Plains, which is allowing Americans to go out into the Great Plains and build towns, houses, towns, et cetera, et cetera, because there's not natural sources of, of lumber out in the Great Plains in the, in the same way that there is in the upper Midwest. And so in this way, Chicago then is, is this, this just dynamic uh, dynamo of, of economic, economic development. Another point on this too, just, just another example here, I was talking about lumber, but uh, Cyrus uh, McCormick is famous for inventing um, the, uh, the automatic reaper. And basically what the reaper allows, it allows farmers to harvest their grains a lot faster than uh, than by hand. And so this reaper, this reaper is going to allow uh, people out in the Great Plains and throughout the Midwest to harvest tremendous amounts of agricultural goods, which then go on the international market. And they're pushing this stuff to Europe. Where does McCormick locate his plans? He locates it in Chicago. Uh, so like, so this is where I think it's, it's very interesting. McCormick's a really interesting example of nature's metropolis, the connection between an urban hub being an industrial center that's creating agricultural uh, harvesting uh, implements that then they kick out to the hinterlands that the hinterlands then use and they kick, the, they, they kick the goods back in. So I think in that regard, this is where I'm totally with Richard Wade's thesis about the importance of cities and the, the interconnected nature of cities uh, and America's uh, hinterlands in this regard. So, um, so anyway, so all of this, all of this is then going to generate uh, major urban hubs through the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, I mean, people, yeah, the, the world is just marveling at this, 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 this dynamic relationship between the wealth of America's geography and geology, its people, and then also, also these urban hubs. Now, here's the thing with the urban hubs, then too is because they're gener and now they're becoming industrially powerful we, we talk about carnegie and in pennsylvania and pittsburgh and steel production all of this stuff but the, all of this the, this dynamo of wealth is this is where it's going to end up then attracting a tremendous amount of immigration 
So late 19th century, you've got tons of Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans pouring into the country, and they're coming into these urban hubs uh, for for these 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 uh, industrial factories that are going up. It's also though it's also attracting a lot of international investment money. Um, so uh, uh, the, the British, et cetera, et cetera, are pouring a lot of investment money because they see this as this is as as a major major economic hub. Um, and so as all of this money flows in, these people flow in, uh, this is going to this is going to create a new dynamo of, 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 of growth, people, ideas, resources, et cetera, et cetera. And so in this regard, um, jumping up to the 1920s now, there's plenty of labor strife in the late 19th century, et cetera. I'm not I'm not pretending like it was all, you know, happy go lucky. Uh, but by the time we get to the 1920s, then. Um, we get a major boom, and this goes back to the, the, the late 19th century. There also becomes a major boom in consumerism and the production of, of commercial goods. Chicago, for instance, uh, why am I drawing a blank on this right now? They have a couple, oh, I'm drawing a blank right now. But Chicago itself is um, generating tons of consumer goods. What's it called? I'm really having a big brain fart on this one. But they, they end up sending out um, all of these mail order catalogs, and they're pushing these oh. mail order Sears and Roebuck. Yes, yeah, Sears and Roebuck. Yes, exactly. So Sears and Roebuck. Um, there's another one too. Um, but yes, yeah, Sears and Roebuck. I mean, they're kicking. And this is what's fascinating about this too is, is that then these these urban hubs become major producers of consumer goods. And so Sears Roebuck is a really good example of this. Is that they're they're pushing out their magazines with all of their mail order products, a tremendous amount of consumer goods. They're pushing that out into the hinterlands. So the hinterlands now are becoming consumers of what the urban uh, of what the urban hubs are are, are producing. So it's just this really phenomenal, incredible period of of growth. I mean, like in the span of like two or three lifetimes, we go from basically open prairies to to empire. It's just really remarkable how this this whole uh, this whole thing flies. So anyway, by the time we get to the 1920s, then um, a couple of things. I actually a couple of things I want to just say here about about this. I know I've been talking a little bit, but um, by the time we get to the 1920s, the 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 urban Midwest is is very well developed, um, and all of this economic activity. I mean, one of the things that the Midwest is sensitive about, and leaders in the Midwest are sensitive about, is their cultural inferiority to the East Coast. And it is, this has always been like kind of a thing with the Midwest. Like, okay, we generate all of this stuff. We're great at building stuff. We're great at producing stuff, but like. Uh, there's just there's instant sensitivity about like you know are we producing great art are we you know do we have our symphonies so there is this there is an insecurity in the Midwest vis a vis the East but you know with that said if you look at the Midwest I mean they are the cities are generating great culture uh, a baseball uh, you've got art museums going up uh, the press uh, movies radio I mean all of this stuff I mean, movies and radios in particular that I mean that's uh, more of a national uh, phenomenon. But uh, by the time we get to the 1920s, there is a national culture that's beginning to emerge, uh, especially with with the advent of of, of, of radio. Um, no longer are we kind of segmented into our different regions. Uh, there's there's kind of a, a sense of a, a national culture that's emerging, but it's it's heavily dependent and contingent upon just the wealth that is generated out of the Midwest. I will say this though about the Midwest in terms of like, what is the Midwest produced that's culturally remarkable? I think one of the things um, that they've produced that was culturally remarkable was once again in Chicago, is Chicago really in many ways pioneers the skyscraper. Um, as as all of this money is, is pouring into these cities and as these cities are generating wealth, 
um, there is a desire to maximize land values, but also kind of the technical uh, know-how where we can like, hey, we can actually maximize this plot of land by just going up and up and up. Um, now, one of the important one of the important technological innovations uh, that that makes that possible um, is the elevator. They had to figure out an elevator because, like, if you like, if you can't you don't want to build a twenty story building and it's like a walk up, right? Like that's just disastrous. And so, like, the elevator becomes an important innovation that comes uh, that is really implemented by uh, a number of, of Chicago engineers. And then that that skyscraper model then is replicated all across the Midwest. And then like every Midwest town wants to have you know, their own business district with their own skyscrapers and stuff. The other thing, though, too, that the Midwest is doing is they're also going horizontal. And this is where we get an early suburbanization process that happens um, with streetcars. Um, are you familiar? Are you familiar with streetcars? Yeah. Like hardly OK, you are. OK. Yeah. I so think like actually, even in this little uh, mining town, there is a lot of that I'm, I live in now. There is a lot of money at the, the turn of the. 20th century and even back in like the 1890s don't quote me on this but i think we might have been the first town with a streetcar in michigan and there okay. was there was so much money up here that they almost made in the up they almost made uh the capital of michigan up here and that all went away and we, and we can talk about that but yeah but okay long story short there are streetcars Okay. They're okay. Yeah. Cause this is like, this is like a way that a lot of the urban hubs in the Midwest, they address the transportation issue because you know, all these people pouring in, you have to get them to work somehow. And so there's, there's a whole involved story with how that worked out in different cities and whether it was, you know, whether they, they made it public or it was private and fights over street car, car fees and all of that. But like streetcars are actually another important part of the development of the urban Midwest, because these became ways of, pushing population out farther, but also drawing them in for work purposes. So a lot of these, a lot of these Midwest, I mean, they're, a lot of them are gone. I mean, actually like all of them are gone. I mean, like I know like Minneapolis, for instance, has kind of recreated one. I know some of these other Midwest cities have tried to, but like, that's a whole other story. But anyway, the point being is, is that these, these are major dynamos of, of not only economic power, but then also now we're getting more culture. Uh, coming out of these hubs, and 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 the, the skyscrapers and the streetcars are all part of the, the physical maturation of of these spaces. Now, with that said, I, and I think this is another important thing when we're thinking about the Midwest, and that is questions of race. Um, I love teaching this to my students. I always I always have fun with this. But um, World War One starts. And what you see is that you see an immediate drop off of immigration from Europe. Okay, so you got a major plummet in immigration from Europe, um, which means uh, your industrialists in the Midwest now are, you know, labor prices are increasing because um, you got a labor shortage. There's no more immigration coming in from Europe. What that labor shortage does is it stokes immigration out of the South. And so this is where this is where you see the African American population was predominantly like vastly vastly located in the South, but the 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 demand for labor in the North, with the shutdown of immigration from Europe in World War One, it begins the Great Migration, what historians refer to as the Great Migration. And so it's during the 19 teens and the 1920s, especially when the economy is roaring in the 1920s, you start to see um, uh, uh, African Americans coming up from down south and relocating to places like. Cleveland and Detroit and Chicago, um, and they're coming up for the jobs. What often gets missed 
though too is in the context of the Midwest, if you look at the if you look at the immigration patterns, you have a lot of African Americans coming up. You actually have in the Midwest, you actually have more white Southerners coming up than African Americans. So you have a lot of white Southerners coming up as well into the Midwest. And so this is kind of where this is where you've got the, the, the beginning of what some historians refer to as the Southern Southern Southernification of America or the nationalization of the race problem. Uh, prior to the 19-teens, 1920s, like uh, African-Americans, the, the, the racial tensions of the South, that was a Southern problem. It was a Southern problem. It's their thing, whatever. When, when African-Americans start coming up with white Southerners, this is where the, the racial question gets nationalized. Um, and this is where in the North, you do start seeing uh, almost right off the bat um, a lot of, of racial segregation in these urban hubs. What's interesting about it, though, too, is... Um, is it is a little bit more complicated because you've you've got accounts of 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 northern whites and urban hubs, which a lot of them were Catholics, a lot of Polish, a lot of Italians. Um, you have them actually in, in in some cases like very much complaining about white Southerners, uh, how loud they are, how much they drink, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like these like these like interethnic tensions, cultural tensions, religious tensions. Because a lot of Southerners coming up, there's like not like that many Catholics in the South. So a lot of this like Protestants coming up and it's kind of like they're kind of bumping into to these major urban Catholic hubs in, in the urban north. And so the 19 teens, 1920s um, is it, it, there's a tremendous amount of racial tension here, which is where you've got the Ku Klux Klan pop up in the 1920s. And a lot of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, it's anti-immigrant. Um, it's it's anti it's anti-immigrant. It's actually it, it is anti-black, but it's predominantly anti-immigrant, which then in the 1920s, you actually have a shutdown. So the the. World War One, the immigration out of Europe ceases, and then in the 1920s, the American uh, Congress passes laws that keep it keep it from from uh, from reopening. And so this is kind of where like the 1920s are interesting in this regard, and that is uh, the KKK fades away for a number of different reasons. But the idea of stopping immigration in the 1920s uh, is, in that sense, successful. Um, and so, uh, in that regard, uh, in the 1920s, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great, uh, decade for cities. It's kind of where the American cities at its peak. Uh, but there's also still those, those ethnic, uh, controversies that, that, that linger. Okay. I just have like, a, like, a, just like one other thing to hit. Uh, any, any questions on any of that? Um, uh, no, release your last uh, thing here, and I got I got a list of things I want to cover. But that that was that was like a great primer of Midwest history. But get your last thing out here, then we'll we'll come back. Okay, so my last thing, and this this maybe sets us up for a later conversation. Um, great Depression hits nineteen uh, thirties. It's really really bad for cities. Uh, industry is really really locked up. This really hurts uh, the, the urban worker base. Um, you get you get the New Deal. The New Deal provides a lot of uh, the Wagner Act in particular uh, creates the it essentially creates the union system. Uh, and then blue collar workers in the urban north are able to benefit from that. They're able to uh, extract uh, concessions out of business. So th that really sets up kind of a, a golden age for the labor movement and for blue collar workers where they're making really, really good uh, wages, et cetera, et cetera. World War Two is a huge shot in the arm. Uh, for the industrial Midwest, they're producing tons and tons of weaponry, planes, bombs, et cetera, et cetera. So, like World War II, really is 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 great for for the Midwest in this regard. 
Um, I think, uh, and in doing so, I mean, in this sense, it, it revives, <laughs> World War II revives a place like Detroit so that it can wreck Berlin and Tokyo. So, I mean, if you just think about it kind of like, a, like, a, like a, yeah, a history of cities during the Second World War, I mean, that's, I don't know if anybody's actually written that book, but like, you know, the relationship between Detroit, in a sense, when America's fighting Germany, it's Detroit fighting Berlin, or America's fighting Japan, it's Detroit fighting Tokyo. I mean, like quite literally, they're 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 bombing these cities to pieces, which is also kind of interesting too, because in terms of industrial competition, the Second World War allows America to destroy its biggest economic competitors. I mean, that's not that's not presumably why we got into the war. There's a bunch of other reasons, but that is that is a consequence. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so the Second World War is 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 great for the industrial Midwest, and then, and I think this is where I, I can stop because we can save. The next part of the story, which is, okay, so you come out of the Second World War, things are fantastic um, for America writ large, but also, you know, these cities have, have, have generated um, a war machine and that's produced tons and tons of money. What happens next? And why did the rusting happen? Because, uh, you know, 1945, you know, you're riding high, but by the time you hit 1975, 30 years later, things aren't so hot. So, but I think that maybe is maybe for another discussion, but I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you decide. Where yeah, we're no, I want to come to that. I think let's just, let's just recap the growth, right. From colonial America to peak, what is Midwest greatness? What, what we look back on is Midwest greatness, right? So a few things I wrote down, first of all, Chicago, you know, you recommended me nature's metropolis. Um, excellent book. I admittedly have not finished it. Uh, I get sidetracked pretty easily, but Let's, it's also it's a, that's also a big book. It's a bit of a tone. <laughs> yeah, right. But but like if we think about the speed at which this happened, I mean, Chicago, the Chicago land area, the United States government didn't even finish acquiring land from natives until the 1830s. It's not really a huge economic player until post Civil War, and then like. Yep. 1893 we're hosting a world fair I mean, <laughs> yes if you yes. think about the speed at which it grew yes especially in a time where there's information transfer was slow literal transportation was slow i mean that's astounding to wrap your head well, around. And, and then also also keep in mind too um 18 1872 chicago burns like yeah. not the whole city but like it, they have the great chicago fire so and actually, what's fascinating about that, so the whole city, not the whole city, but like a huge portion of the city gets torched because it was made out of wood. It was summer. It was hot. They hadn't had rain in a long time. It was just it was just a complete disaster. And what's fascinating about it is you read reports from Eastern merchants. The place gets torched, and the Eastern merchants are sending um, telegraphs to, to, um, to their merchants in Chicago and saying, just tell us whatever you need. Like you're good for it. So like the city has this major, major catastrophe, but everybody out East, all of the finance guys out East know that Chicago is where it's happening. Like it's, it's like, it's already established itself geographically. This is the hub. So like, I mean, that I think goes to show just how powerful Chicago is, is that people had already acknowledged, even while it was still like in its early stages, they knew that was it. And so even when it burned to the ground, they're like, whatever, like, we'll just write that off. Like, we're, this is this is going to be the most important city of the West. And yes. everybody knew it. 
Yeah. And that's, that's amazing to think in retrospect, you know, I think there's a lot of different opinions on Chicago now, but there is no doubt the role it played early on. Another thing, and I want to like highlight this, make this a a main point. And you, whether you know it or not, you have this kind of controversial take that like urban production is necessary and important because if you, if you evaluate a lot of Midwest sentiment, typically mostly rural Midwest sentiment, it's that it's we're, we're here in the center of the country. We're by ourselves. We're farming, we're making goods. You know, we don't, we don't need you city slickers. We don't need whatever. Um, one, I think you did a good job of highlighting. Yes, we do need those people. They're, they're the consumers of your goods. They're the processors of your goods. I, I really like this point that you brought up about investment money. I, I think that's, that's probably understudied and, and underappreciated that without these urban hubs, you have no, there's no commercial investment. Like, you don't have a reason to settle a place to begin with if nothing's ever going to get processed there. Right. So I I didn't know that about foreign investment out of Europe. I thought that was a a real interesting point. Well, I think, I think too, like, I think it's kind of, okay. So this kind of maybe gets to maybe a later conversation in terms of post 1945, but I mean, it's, it's interesting to me. There's um, like the city I live in um, people out in the hinterland, uh, there, I think there's a just kind of there's a, there's still I think increasingly as I as I pointed out in our, our pre conversation, there has been an increased polarization between cities and non cities, especially rural and, and cities. But the thing is, is that even even rural people they still come into town for the baseball game. Hmm. Like there's still you know what I mean there's still stuff to come in like you know like you're gonna go watch you know the Cleveland uh, Guardians you know what I mean like you might. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like it's sort yeah. of like, and you're still gonna watch them on the TV, and they're still located in Cleveland or the uh, the Detroit Tigers. I remember I remember going to a Detroit Tigers game, and like like yeah, you drive in, you go to the game, and you get out. Um, and I think that's kind of there's kind of this like this general like anti city sentiment among many in rural areas, um, for a bunch of different reasons. I will add this though, because um, I think this plays into the present very strongly. Is something that happens in the post war era is um the building the 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 interstate system and suburbanization and a lot of business i mean one of the one of the benefits to cities as industrial hubs was uh proximity they became hubs because they you want to keep all of this stuff close together because you're still working with railroads you're still working some water routes but there was an importance in the late 19th early 20th century to have your industrial hubs concentrated in these urban areas with suburbanization, the automobile and the highway system, and the creation of, of you know the whole trucker industry, that allowed industry to disperse into the suburbs. Um, one of the things that I find remarkable in my in my city is whenever we leave, um, you can be thirty minutes outside of town, and there's still factories, but they're not factories like in the late nineteenth century smokestack way you think of things. They're these more spread out sprawling uh production centers and that right there is a product of of the highway system and uh the vast increase in automobiles and trucking so like cities in that sense in the present they do not have the same uh economic production advantages that they did 
in previous decades. And so that that right there is a major shift in in just production, the production of, of, of hard goods is that there is a pushing out into the suburbs where land is cheaper, taxes are cheaper, uh, et cetera. Kurt, was it you that brought up the the post on Twitter about the American highway system being a great asset for national defense? Yeah, I was pro- yeah, no, that was probably me. I mean, that was, so yeah, that's a whole, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, like one of the, um, there's a great line. Um, there's a great line from a mate uh, was the mayor of can't remember the town, but he talks about, he talks about we have we we have we have to spread out regardless we have to spread out bomb or no bomb so like there is this kind of like this kind of component to the suburbanization process where the idea is okay now that we're living in a nuclear cold war situation like it's actually a good idea to spread your population out and to spread your industry out i mean there's all bomb or no bomb there is a natural american inclination to spreading out and that's a whole other conversation but there is kind of a Cold War context in which uh, the highway system uh, did enable the spreading out of population. It did enable the spreading out of, of, of industry and jobs and production, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I probably had a tweet about that. But, I mean, Eisenhower is really crucial with that. Actually, one of the funny things about that is Eisenhower's inspiration in part uh, was Nazi Germany's Autobahn system. Uh, when he when he went into when when they invaded you know when they got into Germany he's like yeah oh, this this autobahn system's really fantastic, and that also plays into it, but that goes further back because Eisenhower also if I remember correctly I'm pretty sure it's Eisenhower he led a caravan of of military vehicles across America. Don't quote me on this. It was like during the First World War and it just took him forever to get across the country, and they were like really irritated. They're like this is actually like not good for national defense that it takes yeah. so long to move stuff across the country. And so, yes, that's the highway system has got all kinds of implications for for why it gets built and then all kinds of other ramifications um, that are quite extensive. Yeah. All right. So before we came on, I'm just going to wrap up this, this the growing to the peak here real quick. We yeah. were talking about lumber, right? And this is kind of the ultimate epitome of the hub in the hinterland is you have lumber coming out of the north coming down to Chicago, being processed, and then used for westward expansion on the prairie. Yes. Um, to me, that's like the ultimate argument for hinterland and hub, the importance of the urban conversion center. Yes, um, yes. I think one comment you made that was interesting to me is um, the cultural export of the Midwest with skyscrapers and streetcars. I think it's probably fitting that it's an engineering feat yeah um, yeah you know, that's yeah. kind of everyone here prides ourselves on on blue collar steel work and production and i think that's probably fitting yeah. so i think you did a really good job of of getting us from the early days to the peak now let's talk about the decline where okay. where do you where do you feel that the decline started um well, hey, let, let me uh, just uh, before we get to that, let me just give one w- one of my favorite anecdotes about about Americans, and I think this applies particularly the Midwest. You you just said one of the greatest Midwest exports is is engineering or stuff we build, stuff we make, um, and this is one of the great criticisms of America too, though. I mean, you see this in the, the 
you know, the, 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 the 19th century, the first half of the 19th century with guys like uh, Emerson and Thoreau complaining about like, okay, so we've got this great technical skill. We've got, you know, we've got the telegraph and we've got trains, but like, what's the point? Where are we going? What's the point of life? Like you can generate all of this stuff, but are you like generating anything good or beautiful or wonderful? And this kind of goes back to kind of some of that, I think Midwest anxiety. And that is like, okay, we're really good at producing this stuff. Um, and one, one, this, this anecdote has always cracked me up. It was a, I actually tweeted it like probably a week ago. Um, but it's, it's the anecdote of, of the American farmer. So just think about your quintessential Midwest farmer. And he, uh, he goes to Rome for a visit and he walks into St. Peter's, walks into the Vatican, he walks into St. Peter's and he's looking around St. Peter's and St. Peter's is just massive and opulent and gorgeous. And, um, and he, <laughs> the farmer says, he goes, oh, you can get a lot of hay in here. And like, it's like such like an, it's like, I, it's, I love that anecdote because it kind of gets at sort of the, the yeoman farmer-esque nature of the Midwest in this regard, where it's like very practical, very concrete, very um, stuff orientated. Uh, but he walks into St. Peter's, which is gorgeous. And the whole point is to, you know, lift our, lift our, our, our eyes to God. Right. And he's, you know, he's thinking very practically. <laughs> I bet you this could store a lot of stuff. And so I think that also kind of gets at that, at that, uh, sort of that Midwest personality and also that, you know, that Midwest insecurity. And I don't want to overstate that, uh, cause the Midwest is, has produced, um, a lot of cultural goods, but you know, that, I think that kind of captures a little bit of, of that personality a little bit. Uh, so I'm sorry. What was your question? No, back to your question. I so, so we we're in World War II. We have kind of the peak of probably relative cash flow to the Midwest, uh, the height of Midwest cities, and and we can fast forward to the '70s and '80s and and think about quiz essential Rust Belt, the lack of jobs, the outdated manufacturing facilities how do how do we bridge that gap what happens in that time period that causes the downfall okay so, so, so essentially how do we get to the rust belt is that what you're yeah asking? right how do we get to the rusty burnt out no jobs portion yeah okay so uh so i there i mean there's a bunch of different factors um i mean one thing i'll say is that during the second world war um you've got a lot of investment flowing into California. California, uh, and I lived there for a period of time, California is gorgeous. Like it's just, it's just gorgeous. The weather's gorgeous, the land is gorgeous. And so you've got a lot of money flowing into California because well, not only is it a great investment opportunity in of itself, uh, but we're fighting the Japanese. And so you've got a lot of money flowing into into California. Uh, I, had, I had a professor, I was talking to a professor once about this, and he had lived in LA for a number of years. And he had simply talked about, he had mentioned, he was like, he's like, there's bars all over um, Los Angeles that are Michigan bars, Green Bay Packer bars. Like there's a huge Midwest diaspora that ended up in California. Uh, my grandparent, or my, my grandpa's, uh, all of his siblings ended up in California. Uh, and so, so part of it is, is part of it, I think would be a natural development, like California, uh, and the West is, it's, it had, it had been not fully developed. It's still developing. I mean, it's still a very young place. I mean, LA, LA is in terms of cities, it's a baby, you know, compared to like Moscow or Paris, or, I mean, like it's, it's a very, very young city. Uh, but the weather's gorgeous. So you've got a lot of capital that ends up flowing into California. 
Um, and then I think the other, another important facet of this is that the union movement coming out of the 1930s was very strong in the industrial heartlands, um, which I'd include the Midwest, but also the East Coast, because the East Coast has its own major industrial hubs as well. You know, we don't want to just pretend like New York is just, you know, a commercial center. Like there was a tremendous amount of blue collar work in places like New York and Boston as well. And, and um, for that matter, you know, just for the sake of, I mean, the South as a textile hub and and their own manufacturing, like they they held their own too, right? So just just for the sake well, of yes. fairness. Yes. Well, yes, no, and actually, okay. So here's the thing is, is that you've got, the thing about the South and, and the West is there's a bunch of different factors, but one of the biggest factors is the fact that uh, the major unions, uh, the AFL, CIO, the major unions were not able, to, in 1946, you get the Taft-Hartley Act that's passed, which um, really checks union power in a bunch of different ways. Um, but um, what ends up happening is in the South, the Southwest, um, is you end up having uh, states uh, prevent uh, um, really uh, checking uh, the expansion of union power in the South. And so what ends up happening then is, is that you've got all these industries up in the Midwest and stuff, and they're like, okay, look, we can go down South, cost of labor is much cheaper. Um, and then also like, this is like another factor, like moving into the 1960s and beyond, air conditioning. Like I, this is like start, it seemed, like we just take it for granted, but air conditioning doesn't really start taking off until like the 1960s and the 1970s. The mini of air conditioning suddenly now the South, in you know the hot summer months, suddenly becomes much more habitable. Um, you know, you go to like I like I've got like family that's like in Arizona, for instance. Like Arizona is like miserable. Like we talk about the the Midwest being miserable for six months of the year because it's sinking cold. Like like the Southwest would be is equally miserable. It's just hot all the time, right? At least in the Midwest, we can bundle up in the Midwest. We can bundle up in the, in the Southwest, like, or in the South, like how many clothes, how much clothing can you take off? You know what I mean? Like there's just like, yeah. there's a certain point. And so that's where like AC plays a really important role. So the, the checking of union power down South, um, the, the nice weather, the AC mitigates the heat. Um, th those become major factors in terms of, of industries then looking to to kind of slough off down south. Um, once again, though, the interstate system, the suburbanization um, all across America, that's also going to push a lot of those industrial jobs into the suburbs. But, you know, if you're going to if you're going to set up a new factory uh, and the south has got cheaper taxes, you don't have unions down there. The weather is nice. I mean, like, there's a bunch of those like factors then that kick up that make investment south of the mason dixon line make a lot more sense and so i think that's that's a major that's a major component i mean another those are, factor those are still things that we see today right i mean we saw during covid i think you know california notwithstanding new york and illinois have the greatest covid population exodus and you have texas and florida pick up the vast majority yes. of those residents yep. right? it's, it's not it's yep. not a thing that happened once it's still occurring Correct. Yeah, no, no. And it's still it's still happening. Absolutely. I think another factor, though, too, um, that we have to keep in mind is, oh, gosh, I, I, I need to go find this advertisement. I found it probably five years ago. I wish I had screenshotted it. It's one of those like goofy you're doing research and you forget to screen grab it. But there was um, I was doing research on um, automobile advertising. And there was this advertisement. Was, I think it was like 1970. Um, 
and the advertisement, kind of the gist of the advertisement was it was a buy American advertisement, but the way, the way it was framing it was they had in, in the picture, they had a, um, a, uh, cliche, uh, looking German and Japanese businessman. And it was a buy American automobile ad because another thing that it's just, it's just kind of one of the, just the ironies of history is, is that the industrial Midwest benefits from the second world war. They produce all of the goods to wreck Tokyo, to wreck Berlin. But then what we do is, as a part of our cold war policies, we say the American government says, okay, we actually want to rebuild Japan and Germany and turn them into allies to contain the Soviet Union. So this is all part of foreign policy at this point. But in doing so, we also rehabilitated their industrial capabilities. And so this is where then you've got German automobile manufacturers, you've got uh, the Japanese producing um, electronics, et cetera, et cetera. So we essentially rehabilitated our enemies, but then they became global competitors at that point. Um, and so like, that's another factor that plays into this, where even like the automobile industry in America, like in the 1970s, is like, you know, these sinking Volkswagens, uh, these, you know, these BMWs, you know, the, the, you know, you know uh, Japan is itself producing automobiles. So like we actually rehabilitated our competitors in that regard. And that also plays into um, the Midwest at the end of the Second World War industrially literally has no global co competitor. Like nobody, nobody can compete with the Midwest after the Second World War, but within just a couple of decades when we rehabilitate the Germans and the Japanese. And then you can extend it further down the line. And that is, you know, with NAFTA, you know, trade deals with, with Mexico, which allows, you know, us to, you know, American companies to utilize uh, 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 cheaper Mexican labor. And then, and then you have, you know, China, China comes back online. Um, and they're able to, to generate a, a tremendous amount of, of industrial wealth, which further undermines the Midwest. And so, you know, there's a lot that can be said in terms of like, was American foreign policy mishandled, et cetera, et cetera. I, I tend to think it was, but those are all factors there. So the South, air conditioning, uh, no unions, cheaper taxes, investment flowing in California, the rise of international competitors, um, all of these factors play into it. Yeah, that's interesting. So you know, I have a family history of, of blue collar production or, or whatever, however you want to call it. And, um, and so of my father and grandfather, when you talk to these people, they're quick to bring up things like NAFTA, WTO. And like you mentioned, those were obviously massive milestones in, in the decline. And yeah. being being in the shipping industry now, it, like you, you start looking around the country and you start talking to these truck drivers. The amount of manufactured goods that comes out of Mexico is unbelievable. I mean, Laredo exists basically as a as a hub between Mexico and in the U.S. And I was just talking to my friend Mike Lombard about this today. Like, if autonomous trucks became a thing, the city of Laredo would die because the entire economy of South Texas is revolves around bringing manufactured goods, particularly automobile mm. parts out of Mexico. So there's okay, no yeah. doubt that NAFTA played a role, but I think your comment on, on air conditioning in the South is probably understated in discourse of the downfall of industrial Midwest. Yeah. Cause we have, I mean, I actually, okay. So just as an example here in the Midwest, um, I mean, the Midwest, you know, it gets, it, it can get hot here in the Midwest. But, you know, you go into a lot of these old homes. I've been in a lot of old homes because I do 
some investment and stuff with that. But a lot of these old homes that I've been in, a lot of them don't have AC. They have heating because you need heating. Obviously, in the Midwest, it gets like stinking cold here. But they don't have a lot of they don't have AC, and it's because people can endure the summers okay. You know, you go see yeah, right. That's porch. like every that's like every. I mean, I know I live way up north, but that's like literally like every house in my right. town. I mean, we have one guy that works here at our plant that has AC. Right, right, exactly. So, but it, right, and that and that's the thing is is that like <laughs> it's just like where I mentioned weather earlier in the conversation, but like it's kind of interesting to see like like in the modern world, I think we've like there's this tendency to think like we've transcended geography. We've transcended weather, like it's all fine. We got it all figured out. Um, in the Midwest, though, but like, but it, you can always, there's always a way to get warm. Put on another layer, et cetera, et cetera. There's not another. There's not an easy way to get cool. And so, like, that's where I think AC is is actually a really big deal. I mean, it really does change. Um, and actually, I mean, I, I think you know, people talk about you know what happened to people sitting out on the stoop and stuff. Um, you know, people talk about television and stuff like that, but like AC is really what did it, I think, in a lot of ways. Because, you know, you look at these ho homes that were built, you know, prior to AC, they all have like a front stoop up because you got to go out somewhere to get the summer breeze because it's just stinking hot out. Um, and now with AC, you look at, I mean, like how many like new builds do you see with the front porch on it? I mean, like, yeah, but like, no, but like who hangs out on the front porch? You know, who's out, you know, it's, like. It, it's a luxury but, item now. Like to have a porch is a is a luxury item. Yes, right. As opposed to like essential weather control item. But now that we have AC, you know, everybody can just chill inside. And frankly, it's a it's a luxury item because someone sees it on Pinterest or, or something. And and I don't think if we yes. advertise yes. the you know the front of our house, like I don't think many people would actually care or, or actually use it. And and I think that that's an interesting point. I hadn't considered that. Well, and also just to consider this too, like if you look at um, homes that are built post-war, so like you think about your quintessential suburban home, um, <clears throat> typically like the most prominent feature on those homes is the garage. It's one of my pet peeves. Like I know people have homes that have garages that are featured prominently. It drives me crazy. But like, it's also like quintessentially American. It's like, cause we're an automobile culture now um heavily so and so what's do you need a place to park your car and so like i mean like i, I think about my grandparents for instance it's actually kind of funny they live in this big nice house and they have this beautiful front door it's like i don't know it's like a ten thousand dollar front door right nobody ever uses it because you pull into the garage and you go in through the access door you know what i mean like right, right like yeah. nobody nobody uses that but you go you know you go to pre-automobile uh you know midwest where you got you know got those warm summers and stuff um, but you I mean you have that in the south as well. But like, yeah, the front porch, the idea of the front porch is is somewhat become passage, and that's you know it's AC in a lot of ways. Yeah, interesting. So w one other thing, I I really liked your and I'm going way back to the beginning here, right? But but you called the railroads rivers of steel. You brought up the inland waterways. You're a fellow. Yeah. It appears that you're a fellow inland waterway respecter. Um, that's getting some, that's <laughs> yes. getting some traction right now. Um, my next question to you, and I, I want to piggyback off those assets is like, for this plethora of reasons, the Midwest manufacturing capacity, general, uh, you know, general welfare and well-being declines, like how, how do you see us recapturing that? How can we use 
these assets that we have that created greatness to lever ourselves into the future and become more relevant again? Uh, um, well, this is where I feel like, <laughs> so my, my, uh, my ex, my expertise is the past. And one of the, one of the big mistakes that historians make is thinking that because they know a lot about the past, they've got some sort of crystal ball for the future. Um, and it, it becomes very like cringe to me, like when certain historians start speculating about the future or start making definitive pronouncements on the present. Cause it's like, well, okay, just because you know a lot about the past, you know, it doesn't mean you have a crystal ball. Um, I think on, on this, on that, on that particular question, um, and maybe I've, I think I've maybe recommended this to you. I think, I think everybody would benefit from reading it. Who's interested in your particular question. Um, his name's Alan Malik. It's called the divided city. Um, and basically it's, and this is, this is an urban Midwest slash East coast book. So it's, it doesn't address hinterland suburbs as much, but it's a really, really great book in terms of thinking about how, how do we rehabilitate and reinvigorate um, urban hubs? And I think that's, I think that's especially important for the Midwest, but I think also too, just kind of thinking about, I think one of the things that's happened is because of developments in the economy, there's been a there's been a disconnect where, where the, the hubs in the hinterland hinterlands were so intimately connected uh, throughout the 19th into the 20th century. We've now kind of reached a point where um, they, they've become increasingly disconnected. And I think that's kind of driving a lot of the antagonism between hinterlands and hubs. Um, and it's partially because of the, of, of the growth of, of suburbs and, and that kind of in-between space. Um, in terms of reinvigorating, I mean, I think, I mean, I think in some ways, I mean, I don't know, I guess I'm, I guess I'm optimistic about the Midwest. Um, I don't, the Midwest will never, I don't, maybe I'm being overly pessimistic. It will never be the world astounding dynamo it was in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and so I, I, don't, I don't think it's beneficial to think like, oh, we can get back to that. I mean, that, that was that was a product of historical circumstances, geography, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was really a remarkable period. Thing is, though, is, is that like a lot of that stuff is still here, though, uh, in terms of in terms of the infrastructure of cities. Um, but like, I, you know, the thing is, is that this is something else that has struck me is, is that I've been as I've been in the hinterlands of the Midwest. One thing that has struck me is, is that there are certain areas that are not doing particularly well, clearly. That's a, but, yeah. but at the same time too, though, I think it's, I think it, I think we have to uh, be careful of not being overly pessimistic because there are, there are sections in the quote unquote rust belts that are doing just fine. Um, I was, I was um, in the rural hinterlands of a state recently. Uh, lots of paper mills. I was talking to some people there. They're like, yeah, paper mills are great. Kids can graduate from high school and they can start making 20 bucks an hour like just right out of high school. And so like, there's still stuff there. Um, in fact, there's like, there's like these major areas of, of the, the rural hinterlands that are doing fine. I think sometimes we get a little bit caught up in the pessimism of like, you know, Youngstown, uh, Ohio, or, you know, the, the gutting of Detroit or what have you. And those, and that all, that sticks like, and, and as we've kind of talked about the, the reasons behind that, but I also I also think that there's reasons for, for optimism. I think it's sometimes we get kind of caught up in the Rust Belt mentality. And actually, I was I was talking to somebody on Twitter about this. But like, what do we call 
what do we call a revived Rust Belt town or Rust Belt city? Like, that's like, we just always talk about it as the, like the Rust Belt, but it's like, well, hang on a second. Like, that's really kind of putting like a negative spin on this whole situation. Like, there's actually a lot of good things happening here. Um, there's a lot of cities that are doing okay that are reviving in some shape or form. So I, don't, I think maybe, I guess, I guess my thought is like just not to be overly pessimistic to see where the good stuff is. It's not like this is all like a burned over disc. Um, oh yeah, I mean that that's kind of like what my whole spiel is all about, right? And I I think I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on you a little bit. I mean I think there's areas that are doing better than okay. I mean I went through Indiana recently, and Indiana seems to be one of the places that is excelling, right? You still have a lot of that automobile industry especially the parts industry has kind of just hedged out of detroit a little bit to the south and and ended up in indiana and you talk to certain guys online you know there's a i think you're probably familiar with him like labrador skeptic is is an indiana guy and he talks about all these great programs that they're putting together for high school kids and and you have jobs starting at 25 dollars an hour working in this kind of industry that we're talking about um there's a handful of indiana cities that come to mind kokomo carmel um even like even illinois there's suburbs of chicago i've been there recently too there's certain suburbs that are just on fire right now and i I don't need to go into their tax policy frankly because i don't know it but there's obviously there's obviously levers you can pull to to leverage the assets that you have, whether it's the Great Lakes, whether it's the inland waterways. I think um, I'm not sure if, sure if you're familiar with a gentleman. Uh, he goes by Huntsman on Twitter. I can't recall his his real name, but he's he's a supply chain guy, and and he he does some advising to Congress. I know, and he's been a massive advocate for the Ohio River, the Illinois River, and the Mississippi. I mean, at the height of COVID, when it cost $25,000 to get a container from China to LA for, I I hope I'm not misspeaking there here, but I'm pretty sure he said 10% of the cost. So $2,500, you could get a container from China through the Panama Canal up into New Orleans on a boat up the Mississippi River into Chicago for 10% of the cost. I mean, there's still smart people out there that are leveraging these assets correctly. Well, and, and so I, another component of this as well. No, you know, absolutely. I mean, there's still like, and that's kind of where like I just start, I get a little bit, I get a little bit gun shy about the Rust Belt label because, as you say, there's still plenty of hustle out there. There's still, I mean, that goes back to something I said at the start of this conversation. What is it? This, what is this American thing? This American thing's got hustle, and there's still people out there that are able to hustle the system. Another component here too that I just want to introduce just for a second. This is sort of a, this is kind of part of the. It, part of the historiography of, of urban development in America. But one thing that people kind of easily miss is, is that urban hubs, and I didn't get into, I didn't get into this because it's, it's kind of a segue or it's kind of a, a sidetrack, but I think it's important at this particular point, urban hubs are always competing with each other in the same way that states are competing with each other. You see this big drain out of California, you see the big drain out of New York, Urban hubs in the Midwest also compete with each other. And I think a great example of this is Chicago. 
I mean, from everything I've seen, Chicago has been a complete disaster for the last couple of years. I mean, you got crime rates up, like it's just a mess. Taxes are like insanely high. And so what you've saw, and then during COVID, you had a pretty strict COVID regime in Chicago. I remember being in Chicago on a, on a street corner during COVID and I wasn't wearing a mask because I was just like, whatever, we're like on a street corner. And like, I was getting all these like dagger eyes from people around me. And I'm just like, guys, like calm down. This isn't that big of a deal. But I think the significance of, of those factors right there is, I have to double check this, but like early in COVID, I, 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 was, I, I saw some stats on this. Chicago's losing people. Well, where are they going? They're going to Indiana. They're going to Wisconsin. You know what I mean? Like there's like these spillover effects from Chicago where in a weird sort of way, Chicago, instead of being a generator of wealth, I mean, it still is. But like, I know people that have left Chicago. They say paying too many taxes, rent is too damn high. I'm going to go to Milwaukee or I'm going to go to Gary or wherever. Like I can go somewhere where the rent is cheaper and all of this stuff. So I think in that regard, too, there's also competition within the Midwest to kind of squeeze out bad policy. And I think Illinois is a great example of a state with just bad policy. And you're going to get you're going to get, you know, money and people fleeing out of those places. Now, they might end up in North Carolina. They might end up in Georgia. OK, so it's not like they're inherently going to end up in the Midwest. But I think that's another important thing to keep in mind is, is that, you know, cities and suburbs and rural areas are in some ways constantly in competition with each other over population and businesses and all of this stuff. So, um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I just go back and say just like, you know, like Detroit, for instance, Detroit has just, well, as one historian put it, American trade policy, and this was his take, he says, American trade policy gutted Detroit in a way that Hitler never could. And so I think that's another, I think that's another kind of component. And this is where I'm not as well versed on that, on, on trade policy and stuff. I just, so that's where I get a little bit apprehensive about getting into the details of that. But, you know, I do think there's, I mean, there are national policies that affect this, but the other thing is too, is, is that like, if you think about the market as like in constant, constant competition, I mean, from what I understand, I have friends that have moved to Detroit and they're like, look, you can buy a home, a single family, 1,200 square foot home in California for $500,000, or you can buy a duplex in Detroit for 135. You know what I mean? Like, so I think there's like there is like there is advantages to the Midwest in terms of having a strong house, like having an old housing stock, but it's yeah. solidly built. And you've got plenty of opportunity. I mean, this is where, like, you know, when I'm talking to guys about, like, oh, I can't afford a house. You know, one of my mantras is move, go Midwest, young man, go Midwest. Like, in all of these industrial centers um, across the Midwest that have been gutted, quote unquote, there's tremendous opportunities uh, in the housing market to get in, have an affordable house, not be paying through the nose for your housing. Uh, you save, above, uh, save up a bunch of money, especially like with the market going so remote after COVID. I mean, I, I, I thought the response to COVID was, was insane, but it did create opportunities though. And that is, you know, you get a lot more remote work. You got people saying, I'm not paying big taxes to be locked in my apartment in New York city. I can go remote. Okay. Where am I going to go? Um, I'm going to go out to a suburb or I'm going to go out to a small town in the fringe. I mean, I do, I do think that created a lot of opportunities. I'm sure somebody's written extensively on this. I'd actually be interested to see an article on it, but I know like there were people that pushed out of these major urban hubs. And so, and, and the Midwest is a great place. I mean, I tell, I tell my friends living on the West coast, I'm like, guys, come to the Midwest, come to the Midwest. Like you can get good housing here. It's solid. It's well built. Uh, it's not flim flam. Uh, 
and you can get it for so much cheaper. I got a friend out in Oregon and he's, you know, he can buy it, you know, he can buy a house out there for, you know, half a million and he can get double to triple the house for the same price here in the Midwest. Oh yeah. I mean, that's a fact. And I, I was talking to a, a gentleman, uh, I'm linked through work and, and at the, at the height of the copper boom, boom, where I live, you know, there was real, real worldly uh, generational wealth up here. And, and so in our old town, you see some true mansions, some true Victorian mansions. Yeah. And, yeah. and one hit the market recently for $850,000. And this gentleman reached out to me and, he, and he's from Chicago. And he says to me like, in Chicago, $850,000 buys you like a shitty three bedroom that hasn't been re renovated in, in 30 years. Or you can take it, you can take it to these new population centers, the new Midwest, if you want to call it that. And you can get yeah. quite literally a Victorian mansion out of the deal. Um, so yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. There's competitions within cities. You even see this with the suburbs, which I don't, I don't want to comment too much here because I've, I've never lived in the suburbs or, or anything like that. But um, Detroit is interesting to me. My wife has some family down there and what you've seen with Detroit is, is auto, Auto is still big. You know, there's still a lot of manufacturing. The, the bottom line is there's still a lot of manufacturing. There's still a lot of industry in Detroit. And the the employees of this industry, the, the blue collar people that still make a living, have basically just removed themselves from the city limits. And if you travel Interstate 96 now, I mean, within 10 years, there's going to be a corridor between Lansing and Detroit, and it's going to be suburbia all the way through. If you don't already consider that, right? We've just taken these people out of the urban seminar and, and smeared them where there's less taxes and less crime. Yes. 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 Well, and, that, and that's, yeah. And that's, that's the story of the suburbanization of America is, is that after you had all this pent up consumer demand savings coming out of the, out of the second world war. And on top of it too, you had over a decade of like no home building. So you've got all this old stock that's deteriorating in the inner cities and people have got all this money saved up and, you know, Americans, they like to have, they like to own their own home. Um, you know, you can contrast it with like, for instance, like Sweden, Sweden after the second world war, um, they, a lot of, a lot of their building after the second world war, it was apartment buildings. And I do think there's, and that's where I think there is a cult, like there's something that is, us as Americans can't take for granted is that we do have our own uh, inclinations and cultural values. And one of the, one of the American cultural values is owning your own home. Um, and this goes all the way back to, it goes all the way back to the new deal with FDR. Um, some of the, the policies he put in, and this is a whole other thing we could talk about, but I, but suffice it to say, uh, the federal government po passed a bunch of policies that uh, that enabled people to get loan home loans for cheap that were um, uh, guaranteed by the federal government. And FDR was very explicit: we want to create a nation of homeowners. And that right there was that was federal policy. But FDR was also responding to what he saw as the demands of his constituency. 
And so in this regard, the suburbanization process had actually started in the 1920s. It froze in the 1930s because of the Great Depression. And then it just accelerated out of the, out of, out of the Second World War. And so that suburban uh, spread that you're talking about between Detroit and Lansing, like that's, that's, I mean, that's American as apple pie um, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for the Midwest. I think, I think there's a lot of great things still going on. I, I really like your quote that you, you put out there a lot and that, and that's go Midwest young man. To me, the opportunities are just beginning, even if it's a, the second time around, um, the, the coasts are, are oversaturated with people undersaturated with opportunities. That's my opinion. Sure. I'm biased. Um, you have an asset base, you have a natural resource base that's still right for the taking probably in the Midwest. So I think you've done a great job of, of laying down a, a history and a framework of the Midwest. And I, and I hope I can, in future episodes, I'm going to have some entrepreneurs and some farmers and, and I hope we can lever off this conversation quite a bit. Um, before we go, I, I think what you're doing is, is interesting. You're a PhD student, you're teaching. Um, to me, there's a lot of divisiveness and, and politics and, and whatever in American education right now. So I just, if, if it's all right with you, I wanted to close out kind of asking you like, where do you see yourself? You're obviously a wealth of knowledge. You know, how do you, how do you take that wealth of knowledge and, and apply it in modern education? I, I guess let's start with, I mean, what even inspired you to be, to get into education? Cause there's no doubt it, it's a tough job right now. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, uh, it's funny when people ask me like, Who's your big? Who's your biggest inspiration as a as a teacher? Uh, for now that now that you're a teacher, who's your biggest inspiration? Looking back on it, and um, you know, I, I think about different college professors or whatever. And like for me, I was like, I was like, oh, duh, it's my dad, because my dad was a preacher. Um, so like, I grew up like listening to preach every Sunday, and so uh, I mean, that's just where like for me, and like I'm the oldest of a number of kids. And so I was always helping my siblings with like their homework, but I was also also listening to my dad preach every Sunday. My dad's a good preacher. And so like, that was kind of my inspiration for getting into education. And then yeah, I loved history. So I was like, okay, well that's, that's kind of my calling here. Um, but then I was like, then I was still itching to go back to school. And I, I was, I actually was emailing McDougal. I referenced McDougal earlier. I emailed McDougal um, and he and I were just going back and forth. He was, it's, it's always interesting. One thing I tell people is like, don't be afraid to uh, email uh, professors whose book you're reading or whatever. Cause they like, they always love to hear from people. Um, occasionally you run across like these professors that are just like total jerks. Like they're just high on their own supply and they don't have time for you. Occasionally that happens. But on the whole, I find that um, they're usually pretty good they're usually pretty good at responding. So anyway, McDougal, McDougal wrote back to me. He's, he, and he wrote in all caps. The only reason to go to grad school is if you love history, like full stop. He's like, don't count on a job. None of that. Like you just have to love history. Like that's, that's what you got to do. You got to see that as your calling. Um, and so like, that's kind of, that's how I've approached it. Um, 
through the ups and the downs, uh, the downs being <laughs> COVID, knocking out um, a ton of archives and stuff. I mean, archives just milked COVID for all it was worth, um, which is frankly, like, especially absurd because if Walmart is open pretty much from day one uh, and they've got, you know, thousands of customers coming through, like an archive, like maybe have 10 people come through a day. Like it's just like so fragile. Like these archivists are just so fragile. And I still, I still walk into these archives. They're all still all masked up. It's just like this weird, like time warp situation. So there were definitely hardships with um, getting this done in the meantime. I think, um, you know, moving forward, um, I think, I think history and thinking through these big questions of like, who are we? What is good? What is true? What is beautiful? How does that relate to this American experience? Um, those are questions that are good for asking for their own sake. Um, and maybe that's just me coping with, you know, getting to the end of a PhD program and being like, well, job market is crud. Uh, but I knew that going into it. So um, I think, you know, moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I, I've, got, I've got some options, I guess, moving forward. But um, I feel like I've lost the thread, though. Do you want to like? Yeah, sure. I guess. No, I, I, I think that was good. We're, I don't know exactly where you want to teach or what you want to do. But I mean, yeah, yeah. do you want to have a do you want to have a spe specific direction you you take your teaching? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the thing is, is that um, with a Ph with with a PhD, I mean, because like you can go, like, I have a number of colleagues who have PhDs and they're not doing anything related to teaching, um, and that's totally fine. Um, and I, there's a number of different things I could do that's not teaching, but I mean, teaching is just it's just it's my bread and butter. It's like what gets me up in the morning. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I think the thing is that, you know, with, with a PhD, so I guess I'm speaking to people who are thinking about getting a PhD, I guess, in a way, uh, in a humanities topic, is um, there's been a number of articles that have been written on this recently, but, um, you know, PhDs, like, if you love teaching, I think one of the mistakes that PhDs make is, is that they feel like, like, they fell short if they're not teaching in a university. But, like, if you're doing the PhD for its own sake because you love history, as McDougall says, only do it if you love history, then at the end of the day, if you love teaching, then then teaching is what you need. And teaching at the high school level, there's nothing actually wrong with that. In fact, I will say this, um, high school students are better than college students from a teaching standpoint. Like they're just flat out better. And the reason for that is, is that the college students, they've already arrived. They yeah. made it to college. You know, they, they, you know, they're thinking about the party on the weekend. High school students, they're hungry to get there. And so I, in my experience teaching on both sides of that line, I've actually found high school students to be much better students, much more interesting students, much more engaged because they see it. I mean, you know, it's not they're doing history for its own sake, but they, they have some, they've got some lines they got to get across. Whereas, you know, when you get to college, it's like a, it's a required class or whatever, in high school, um, you know, that GPA or that AP exam or that IB exam, like they got, they got it, they got a nail. And so they're very, very engaged. And so this is where, in my experience, my best students from my high school, like consistent, like really hardcore, really great students. 
So um, in, in my case, like what I like to teach at a university, uh, if the opportunity presents itself, that'd be nice. But um, but maybe not. I mean, if it's a, if it's like a university, let's just say, okay, you get the PhD. It's a university in middle of nowhere, no disrespect intended, middle of nowhere, Kansas, versus a high school where I'm at right now, that's a high end high school that's looking to get kids into college. Like, I, am I going to move my family out to middle of nowhere, Kansas? I mean, I could, but like, you know, the pay difference isn't actually that much. In fact, you could be making more at a high end, you know, prep high school. So like, that's kind of where like, it's, it just kind of becomes interesting. I think there's just been kind of this hard wired thing where you get your PhD and then you look at tenure track. The job market is tough, like really, like insanely tough. Um, and so, and then oh, at the same time too, as I said, like there's really, there's really upsides to teaching high school students, which I'd also say to anybody who's listening, that's a high school teacher, that's feeling like down on, oh, I'm just teaching high school. I'm like, no, you're like in a really sweet spot. Um, and that's just where, you know, those kids, not only do they need you, but they're, they're actually in a lot of ways better than the college kids. Yeah. And from a thousand foot view, if you back out a little bit, less the credentials and the criteria. I mean, young people are more impressionable. And like you said, there's a lot of kids out there that, that need you. And I know right. I had a lot of high school teachers that I hated, but the ones that were good, like to me, I got way more out of my best high school teacher than I got out of my best college professor. And maybe yes. it's because I was young and impressionable and maybe it's because, right. you know, for whatever reason, but I think there's, there's a lot of merit to what you're saying. Yeah. Well, and like in my, in my case, like, I mean, honestly, like the best compliment, because like when you walk into a classroom, you've got the students that love history, which is like a small percentage. <laughs> and then you have yeah. the students who, hate it or walk into a classroom, whether it was teaching high school or, or teaching at the college level. My goal was to get that big middle section to like it well enough where someday they might pick up a book and read. Like that was always because I'm like, I'm not going to convince the guys who love it or the gals who love it because they already do. And the people who absolutely hate it, like they're just going to be a pain. I, there's not, I can't waste my time on them. I got to get the people in the middle. If I can just tip the people in the middle across the line. Like that's always like, that's where I teach to. I teach right to that middle group. Um, and yeah, I, so and actually, and the thing with that too, is if I'm just teaching to the high, because if I'm just teaching to the high group, I lose the middle group. Like if I could just go super nerdy and like super hard with the assignments and stuff, I like the top group will be happy. They'll, they'll execute well, but then I lose the middle group. And then like, what did I just do? I just like knocked out, you know, 20 students. So my objective is always like, can I get, can I push that, that middle group across the line and, Actually, that's encouraging what you just said there in terms of high school. Um, yeah, high schoolers are more impressionable, but it's also, but that's not necessarily like a bad thing. It's like, it's more like they're more, um, they're more, they're not as uh, fixed in their ways. Yeah. Like there's, a, yeah, there's an ability to it as a good thing. Like, like I think you have, if you're a good instructor, you have in the best way possible, you have more ability to mold. Yes. Right. Right. And and, 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 and it might thing, yeah. right. It could be a bad thing too, but sure, sure. It's easy for kids to check out if it gets bad. Where on if you're a good instructor, there, there's upside in in impressionability. 
Yep. And that's always, that's where I, the, the, my, the, the compliments I, I love the most where I know I'm doing a good job is when a student says to me, like, you know, I've had history before and I always hated history, but like, I actually kind of like it. Like if, if that's the best compliment I can get, like, I'm just like, okay, I did my job. Like if I was able to get that one student to say that, then I know the other, other students were thinking. Um, and I think that's just where it comes from a teaching standpoint. Um, you're forming minds and you're forming souls. And if you can, if you can, if you can pull that off, then you did your job in, in, in my opinion. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're at an hour 45. I think, I think it's uh that was a high note to end on and I'd like to wrap it up. Um, I'm going to close with, and I can't even say the author's name, but uh, there's a book and I can't remember if it was you or someone else that pointed me to letters from an American farmer. And in that book, there's uh, it's a series of essays. Uh, the third essay is what is an American? And he talks a lot about American greatness and, and where it comes from and how it comes to be. So I just like to close with this quote here. We are a people of cultivators scattered over an immense territory communicating with each other by means of good roads and navigable rivers, united by the silken bands of mild government, all respecting laws, without their dreading power, because they are equitable. And I think to take this podcast about the Midwest, to take Kurt's history and to build off it, I'm excited to see where we go. I thank Kurt for his time and his knowledge, and I thank everyone for listening. So I'm going to sign off and... Uh, if we want to find you, Kurt, where are you at? Um, somewhere in the Midwest. <laughs> um, online, no. where are you at? You have a great uh, online. Yeah, it's the Twitter account. That's where I'm at. I'm at. The, I'm at. That's it's Kurt Steiner. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's where I'm at. All right. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate your time, Kurt. Have a good one. All right. Yeah. Hey. Good. Good conversation.